Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroyas. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today we're talking with the, about the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's conversations with National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger in 1971. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, Professor of History at Texas A&M Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon White House tapes and founder of nixontapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks, Jonathan. Glad to be back. President Nixon says in his memoirs that he installed the taping system as a way to record history accurately. And he mentions that this installation occurred around the time of the Lam Sun 719 operation to combat communist infiltration um, in Laos, uh, nearby uh, Vietnam. He felt that much of the press coverage was wrong about the Vietnam War and decided to give another major speech about Vietnam on April 7th. 1971, two months after uh, the installation of the taping system. Um, It covered the Laos operation and the way forward for American policy in Indochina. Um, You've listened to many, um, a lot of these tapes. Um, How do you feel in general? um, Do they reflect uh, Vietnam War policy? Well, when you you have, you know, over 3,000 hours of tapes, um, it, it's complicated. Uh, when you're talking about 1971, uh, in particular, um, many of Nixon's sort of premier foreign policy initiatives have not taken off yet. Uh, the seeds have been planted during the first two years of the presidency, 69 and 70, with respect to China, the Soviet Union, or, or here with Vietnam. Uh, but to me, the tapes show provide a different vantage point on the war than you know any other document that you could study uh, on the war. The tapes, um, because they feature people talking, um, the tapes are more human, uh, they're more emotional, sometimes that emotion is raw, very raw, and sometimes the conversations have, occur in real time as uh, Kissinger reports something to Nixon that just occurred uh, in Vietnam or something that was said. Uh, so to me, tapes, for a number of reasons, are are kind of a you know almost a three-dimensional rendering of of um, of the subject in real time with real human beings. And I think probably like any president during any war, not just Nixon during Vietnam, you know, during 1971, they show the ups and downs of the war. I mean, you get the you, you get the the, the raw emo- emotion and reaction when things are are going well. You get it when things are not going well. And so tapes show a human com- complexity that I would argue you, you can't get in any other record about the war. In the introduction, I mentioned the Lamson 719 operation. Um, what, was, what was this and what was specifically was Nixon trying to accomplish in Laos? Well, this is a, 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 a long subject, um, a complicated subject. Uh, that that goes back to probably at, at least uh, the 1962 agreement with Laos uh, that was negotiated by Avril Harriman during the Kennedy administration. Um, you know Nixon uh, Nixon was criticized in 19 uh, beginning in 69, but in 70 when it was discovered for for example expanding the war to Laos and Cambodia. Um, and I, I think there is some truth to those critiques. However, the critiques of Nixon have to recognize that the North Vietnamese also expanded the war, going back to the 62 Laos Agreement, 
after which they they did not hold up their end of the agreement and and they infiltrated Laos and Cambodian territory. And so Nixon was aware of this. Um, President Johnson was aware of this. It, 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 Kennedy knew uh, in '63 that the North Vietnamese were not holding up their end of the, of the agreement. So I think pres- a su- successive uh, you know, series of these presidents was aware that the North Vietnamese were, were using Cambodian and Laos territory. Uh, you know, Vietnam is a long, narrow, skinny country that's as narrow sometimes as only 40 miles uh, across to the sea. And so the, the, the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail the North Vietnamese were using as their supply route ran all the way down Laos and Cambodia to resupply North Vietnamese fighters almost all the way down uh, to Saigon in South Vietnam. And so I think beginning in 69, 70, and 71, Nixon wanted to do something about that. He wanted to root them out. He wanted to uh, bomb their so-called sanctuaries. He ultimately wanted to eliminate the, the ability of the North Vietnamese to resupply their fighters in South Vietnam. And, and Lam San 719 was, was part of this. At this point in early 1971, uh, when these tapes were installed, um, where were we generally um, in the Vietnam War? Was there significant progress made? Were we at a sort of a standstill? What was our... Um, was sort of the both the military and kind of the uh, the political standpoint in terms of the negotiations. Uh, where were we during this period of time? It's it's a good question. I I encourage um, people who do dive into the tapes, uh, whether it be my students or the public or the media, um, you know, try to pretend uh, that you're in 1971 listening to these, not in the present day. Because, of course, in the present day, you look back and you say, well, you know, what's the big deal? You know, Nixon was, was reelected in 1972 with a 49-state landslide. Uh, wasn't his reelection obvious? I mean, it's sort of the way the history was written up after the fact. But in, in early 71, it was a very different situation for, for in the White House. Uh, as I said before, you know, really none of Nixon's major foreign policy initiatives had taken off. Um, some seeds had been planted, uh, some initiatives and efforts had been stalled, some ideas that had been tried didn't work, and they were looking for new ideas, and that's both Vietnam, also China, and the Soviet Union. 71, I think, and fortuitously for us, our listeners today, because this is when taping began, is when a lot of these ideas start to move forward. Um, the spring, summer, and fall of 71 is on, on all of these fronts, Nixon's beginning to gain a little bit more traction. Uh, but in 71, he's not only not going to be reelected by a landslide, which is what we know, you know occurred 18 months later. It didn't, he, he expected he wouldn't be reelected at all. And in fact, even had doubts uh, that he should even run for reelection, which of course I think is, you know, it doesn't take a complete cynic to say, well, that's silly. Of course, presidents run for reelection. But just the previous election in 1968, we had a powerful sitting incumbent president, President Johnson, who did the same thing by deciding not to run for re-election. So I think just a couple of years later, Nixon had something similar in his, in his mind, that, that one presidency had already been lost to Vietnam, Johnson's, the possibility that a, a second presidency, his own, was jeopardized by Vietnam. So I think thinking in 71 terms, which I think is the right way to look at these tapes, not, and try to pretend you don't know what comes afterward, even though it's not completely possible to do that. 
I think Nixon is is really you know dealing with a lot of struggles, but he's starting to make a little traction and moving forward on, on a range of his initiatives. You had mentioned um, his reelection. This is after the 1970 midterms. Uh, where was specifically public support for the war at this period of time? Well, public support for the war, you know, actually positive support for the war, uh, was basically diminished by, um, I would say, during the end of Johnson's term, 67, early 68, for sure, by Tet, um, and early 68. And then by 68 going forward, you not only have a, a lack of broad support for the war, but actual active opposition for the war, uh, as of 68, has moved from the fringes, where it had been, to the mainstream. I mean, moved from the kind of, uh, from church leaders and, and true diehard pacifists to kind of the mainstream of American public opinion. And in 68, the, the war itself becomes the major issue uh, in foreign policy during the campaign. And it's, its domestic counterpart, you know, law and order uh, and, and, and managing public opinion at home is, is the other half of the 68 election. So, you know, by 70-71, you know, Nixon is seeing some of his largest anti-war protests uh, on, on, the wall, on, on the mall in Washington, D.C. You have the, the White House at this point has been ringed with buses to prevent the possibility that protesters would, would uh, breach the White House fence. You have the 101st Airborne Division and, and other, um, you know, not National Guard, but actual military in the basement of the Treasury Building in, in case they're needed for deployment right around uh, the White House campus. Uh, so I think President Nixon has really been seared by a, a couple years of his presidency when he, I think he hoped for a, a speedy exit from Vietnam that did not come. He was committed uh, now to a longer road to peace and, and getting the nation out of the war and winding it down in a way that he felt would preserve as much face for the United States, for his administration, and also for our ally, South Vietnam, and for our other anti-communist allies in the region in Southeast Asia. Uh, so I think he had been seared. He'd been through some, a fire uh, for those first two years. And I think he was a little more settled. I think his policy going forward in 71, he finally was starting to get legs under that policy, and he was beginning to move forward. Let's listen to the tape from April 6, 1971, about the before-mentioned uh, the pre- uh, uh, President Nixon's uh, uh, April 7 speech, which was upcoming. Um, this is President Nixon and his national security advisor, Dr. Kissinger, discussing a draft of the speech and the way to communicate the war to the general public. They want to take off the immediate pressure. This is their overriding concern. Mm-hmm. Well, the immediate pressure isn't all that heavy. And that, I don't believe, can be done. Yeah. I mean, it can't be done their way, because once you accept the premises of McGovern, you are fighting on his ground. And it wouldn't be in character. Oh, that's right. There is one thing, Mr. President, there are two sentences we ought to add. Yeah. Uh, Because there's the cynical comment that the dogs are now making, especially McGovern, that we are substituting America, Asian for American casualties and increasing the bombing, and we can do it in two senses. One, where you speak about reduction in American death, yeah. you can say, and South Vietnamese casualties have also dropped by, I think, 50%. I'll get you the exact right. figure. And why don't we say that our, uh, and then put in, 
And we've reduced our bombing by so much. And the bombing within South Vietnam has been reduced yeah. by 90 percent, Mr. President. Yeah, and just, well, rather than getting into too many figures, you say that the that we've, we've reduced our bombing by 30 percent or something like that. Uh, you know what I mean? Just get it, whatever the figure is for Southeast Asia, so I don't have to get into separating South Vietnam from Laos. Uh, the significance of the 90 percent is that in the populated areas, our bombing has decreased by 90 percent. The area I, now bombing is the unpopulated mm -hmm. area. But I know that, but I don't have time to explain that. No, I'll, I'll get you that. All we need is just get some figure that makes the point we've that is we've we've, we've uh, uh, we, well we, we we can at least try to try to get that across. Right. But, uh, so two sentences is what I would recommend in that. Right. Well, and also that South Vietnamese casualties. Are that down. South Vietnamese casualties. I'm getting the exact. Even point. with Laos. Even with Laos. Yeah. You even say that, even with the heavy casualties they took in Laos. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course, these goddamn dove things, and it's, it's just one thing. They eat you alive, you take one thing, and then they go after another one. And, uh, hell, I've, uh, I've determined to just see it through and hell with them. And, uh, it's the, it's and if, they, uh, if it fails, it fails. And Well, it's a heroic posture, Mr. Well, yeah, you know, here or not, the point is that there's no other course for the country. Yeah. The uh, These people, I mean... Um, that's why the uh, why our our domestic side. I mean, while I'm interested in their views, why they're irrelevant. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. That's right. I mean, now on the other hand, too, I must say that they are they are so terribly obsessed with re listening to television, reading all of our critics, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, and of course I must say the Alsop piece probably disturbs them. But they read all that, and 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 they say, well, now just a minute. Is this true? I mean, are, have we have we overstayed anything? Haven't we really kept our promises? You see, that's the point. That's I, I constantly get back to the fact that I don't think our own people know that enough how to defend us. That's right. That's well, right. Hmm? They are astonished by some of these things, or by what we've accomplished. I mean, we've kept our promises. We will have taken out several several hundred thousand two thirds. In this taping, uh, Nixon seemingly, in his own in internal communications, is ardent in his belief that the Vietnam War policy is succeeding and frustrated at how it's playing out in domestic politics. And uh, Nixon and Kissinger are worried that they have a credibility problem, um, but they believe that their foreign policy is solid and they don't want to, they don't want to appeal to the, um, the dovish faction in American politics. Um, what do you think... Uh, Luke, did these early tapes reveal, especially about how the Vietnam War was communicated by the administration to the general public? Well, I think I think one of the things that the tapes reveals is just how many times uh, the complexity of the Vietnam War um, involves details that Nixon himself struggles to keep up with. Uh, in terms of, I mean, he'll come, he'll get a briefing from, say, someone in the military. And he'll get number of targets, number of sorties, payloads. I mean, he gets it's really granular, you know, the kind of details he gets. I think what this conversation shows us is that, you know, when when Nixon prepared to speak to the American people, uh, he gave 14 uh, addresses to the American people during his presidency on Vietnam. And I think what he wanted to focus on focus on is. You know, give me a simple message. Give me a few points that that can 
have a chance of getting through to the American people. Um, and I think this is this speech comes at a time when he and Kissinger are starting trying to really jumpstart uh, the Vietnam negotiations in Paris and ultimately wind down American involvement in the war. And so they're doing a number of things kind of publicly and privately. You know, publicly, this speech was a a tool. Uh, It was a tool to reassure the American people that um, we were getting one more step closer to ending the war, um, and that by we were just about reaching the halfway point in terms of the number of troops that had been brought home, and that another 100,000 would be brought uh, home by the end of the year, 1971. Uh, Nixon wanted to emphasize to people that in a chaotic, disorderly world, that there was order uh, in terms of our Vietnam policy and that our troops were on our way home. Uh, Also, by the end of uh, the same time privately, what you have going on in the tapes in April and May is Kissinger is getting ready to go over to Paris again for another session. He leaves for Paris on May 31st. Uh, with a new seven-point program that would move the U.S. one step closer to ending the war, and so it, it's the constant. It's it's the it's the public. It's the private. It's the 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 reassuring of uh, public opinion, um, while also having the right messages for the Chinese or the Soviets or the North Vietnamese, who are just as capable as, as we are of understanding a, a televised speech or reading about it in the New York Times or the Washington Post the next day. So it's it's really you you see the complexity of the public relations of the war, both for at home, abroad, for allies and adversaries. Into the point of that complexity, um, Richard Nixon's broader foreign policy, as Vietnam fits into it, was very complex to to uh, communicate to the general public, um, whether that be um, you know uh, the China Initiative. Uh, what were you going to do in Russia? Can you can you touch a little bit uh, upon that? What the I guess what the um, complexities of communicating how Vietnam f- fit into that broader strategy? Well, this is a subject that we're still learning a lot about. Uh, records are still being released, um, and of course, on the Chinese side, there's basically no records available, and on the Russian side, there are very few records available. Um, and on the American side, records are, are still being released at the National Archives at the Nixon Library. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's 71 when the idea is germinating, um, which would then mature and become what we know today as this triangular diplomacy. Um, so, so this triangular diplomacy, and, and one end of the triangle is the United States, on another end of the triangle is China. On the other end of the triangle, the third end, is the Soviet Union. And the idea is that we're, we're going to reduce our commitments to Southeast Asia, but not enough to make our allies concerned, um, not quickly enough that we're sort of being accused of so-called cutting and running and um, turning to, you know, the concern of turning isolationist and around the world, you know, that gets back to the Nixon doctrine. We're going to maintain our core commitments. We're going to take on, you know, fewer commitments on our periphery. So there's some reassurance to allies and certainly those anti-communist leaders in Southeast Asia. Uh, but at the same time, um, while we're changing, reducing and also altering our footprint in that part of the world, 
we're going to try to do so in a way that improves relations with our longtime adversaries in China and the Soviet Union. And so Vietnam is, is not something that happens in isolation. It, it has a tether to what's going on with the Soviet Union, with China, with our allies around the world. Um, there's a need to brief our allies in Europe, who are our closest allies, like West Germany, France, and Britain. Um, so it, it's very complicated. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pithy thing to say, but I think it's very true that it, it's very easy to get into a war. Wars, wars happen s- suddenly, and they happen often according to seem- seemingly very simple priorities and variables, but it's much more complicated to get out of a war, especially when you've been in one as long as the U.S. has been, uh, not even mentioning going all the way back to World War II and the support of uh, China and the support of anti-communists and the French. Uh, so I think the tapes really show the complexity of all this in a way that looking at a piece of paper at the library uh, research room or at another archive uh, is not immediately apparent. Let's uh, listen to the next tape uh, following, this is following the April 7th speech. This is in the evening uh, following that White House address. Yeah, Mr. President. Yeah, hi, Henry. This was the best speech you've delivered since you've been in office. I don't. Well, I don't know. I think no, November third was better, but uh, no, but we will never have a moment. We'll never have a moment like that again. Well, the November third speech was not well delivered, Mr. President. If yeah. you remember, yeah, it was a powerful speech. Yeah, this one was really movingly delivered. Uh, and well, I don't know whether you saw the commentary after Of course, I don't look at the commentary. Well, I, don't care what, I don't care what the bastards say. Well, but this is so amazing, John. First of all, no one was fly-specking it. Mm-hmm. John Chancellor was very favorable. Uh, everyone is saying a strong man sticking to his guns, mm-hmm. uh, carrying out his policy, not being driven off. Dan Rather, very positive. Marvin Cow, very positive. Mm-hmm. The only guy who was fly-specking it a little bit is the, is the Pentagon correspondent mm-hmm. who had been... How about Howard Smith? How did he do? Uh, he would not. Uh, at least I didn't see him. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. This was a... This little speech was a work of art. I mean, I, I know a little something about speech writing, and by the time we got it down in that little conclusion, I think that was done. Uh, there isn't a... It isn't because, and it was no act, because no actor could do it. No. But, as you hear from that tape, Kissinger strikes an encouraging tone to the president about uh, the press coverage following the address. Um, president Nixon claims that he doesn't analyze the press coverage, uh, but he does entertain uh, Kissinger's thoughts on it. Um, how much of these tapes reflect the administration's relationship uh, with the press, uh, especially during the Vietnam War? Oh, well, this is actually a, a good tape to, to address that question because... Um, you know, I think there's a, a light-hearted way to address the tape, and then there's, there's, I think, the more serious way. In the light-hearted way, it's, it's kind of funny to hear the, uh, the president say that he doesn't pay attention to the press or the commentary. And, you know, I think it, at a certain point, all presidents say that. I think all presidents say, well, I don't read the news, or I, I turn the television off, or I don't pay attention to what they say. Um, when I think, even though President Nixon says this, at the same time, he says, oh, Howard K. Smith, what did he say? You know, uh, so he, he's both saying that, but he also clearly still kind of wants to keep a finger up in the wind, so to speak, and, know, and wants to know which 
direction the public opinion is blowing and forming and evolving. Um, so I think his his public position is, of course, I don't pay attention, but this is, you know, presidents receive a daily news summary every day that gives them a wrap-up of yesterday and it gives them uh, news overnight and what the leading stories are for the day. So I think that's a more lighthearted way. And in a more serious way, you know, a lot's been said about um, Nixon's relations with the press. Um, he was not a popular figure with the press going back to the Alger Hiss days and his time in Congress. Um, you know, you know, I, 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 my own take on Nixon and the press is it's been kind of oversimplified by a lot of commentators. You know, it's been so easy for many just to say, well, Nixon had terrible relations with the press. He hated them. They hated him. But it, it's, I think it's, it's more complicated than that. I mean, Nixon is really the beginning of a generation um, that started with Kennedy that knew how to use the press, manipulate the press, and I think, as a result, had more contentious relations with the press. I mean, don't for, don't forget. I mean, uh, President Nixon uh, became famous in the media during the his trial uh, when he gave the Checkers speech in 1952. That was the most popularly watched, the most viewed political program ever uh, at that point on television, eclipsed only by what um, his appearance with Kennedy in 1960 for the presidential debates. Um, he, he, we heard a reference in the conversation to, to November 3rd. Well, that was November 3rd, 1969, and that evening's televised address that Nixon gave uh, that became known as a silent majority speech, probably the most famous and most important speech of Nixon's entire presidency and one of the most important speeches of any recent president. Uh, so it's complicated. I mean, Nixon utilized the press. He wasn't quite from a generation that could break away from reading a text um, the way that more modern politicians can. But this is uh, someone who had benefited, I think, from press coverage as much as had been beaten up from it uh, along the ways. So I think Nixon's relationship with the press is complicated. On a subject like Vietnam, uh, it's hard to score a lot of points with the press. it's It's a negative subject. He inherited this terrible policy um, it wasn't a, a you know it, it wasn't a thing that you could you know spin very easily into positive news. Uh, so it's um, it, 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 it seems like a a way to dodge answering the question. Uh, but when it comes to Nixon and the press, it's complicated. Our guest today was Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University Central Te- Texas. Our topic was the Nixon White House taping system in the early parts of early part of 1971 during the Vietnam War. Luke, thank you so much for your joining us. Thank you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This is Jonathan Mavroides signing off.